From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression. I'm Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. I'm really delighted you're joining us this week. If you're not already a subscriber, please sign up wherever you get your podcasts. This week, Vivek for president. In 2016, the Republican Party embraced a political outsider, a successful businessman turned populist who promised to take on the vested interests who ran Washington and said he would upend American politics. Now, Donald Trump, of course, is back, running as the favorite for the third time and for a second term as president. But Trump is now the face of the GOP in many ways. Is the party ready to fall again for a complete outsider? Well, my guest this week certainly hopes and thinks so. Vivek Ramaswamy is the child of Indian immigrants. He went to Harvard and Yale and then went on to build a highly successful biotech business along with some other ventures. But in the last few years, he's been waging a high-profile media and financial campaign, and now a political one, against the progressive orthodoxies of our age. He's presented himself as the scourge of what he calls woke capitalism and says America's in the midst of an identity crisis, an age when faith, patriotism, and hard work are in decline, and secular religions like climate extremism and gender ideology are in the ascendant. He says he's running not just a political campaign, but a cultural movement to restore the primacy of American values, elevating excellence over identity and merit and opportunity over victimhood and grievance culture. He's promising a radical overhaul of government too, pledging to rein back the administrative state to shut down some agencies and rein in others like the Federal Reserve. Abroad, he says he would adopt an aggressive posture against China, even being prepared to bar US companies from expanding there until its government abandons theft and other mercantilist tactics, as he calls them. So is this a blueprint for a new conservatism? Or, as an outsider trailing in the polls, is the 37-year-old Ramaswamy merely laying the foundations for future opportunities? Well, Vivek Ramaswamy joins me now on the campaign trail in Pennsylvania. Vivek, thanks for joining Free Expression. Good to be on, Jerry. How are you? Very well, thank you. And I want to get into uh, your campaign, your agenda, your plans, your critique of what's gone wrong with the country. And we want to get into that in some detail. But obviously, there's a lot of news. There always is. And today's news, we're recording this, I should say, on Tuesday, around Tuesday lunchtime. The big news today, of course, is the plea deal that seems to have been struck between Hunter Biden and the Justice Department, who were investigating him, on the various charges that he faced. And in what looks like, I think by most measures, looks like a fairly favorable outcome for the president's son. It looks like he's done some sort of a deal where he will not serve any prison time, the failure to pay tax or the gun ownership issue. Now, you were very critical last week of the Donald Trump indictment saying that uh, it was a politically motivated prosecution. What do you make of this? Do you think we have two systems of justice going on? I think it is yet another example of two standards of justice. And I'm not surprised by it either, Jerry. I think that this is a deflection tool, actually, to be able to actually so-called settle a range of offenses that deflect actual accountability for the real and most important alleged offenses against both Hunter Biden and Joe Biden. I think it is no coincidence that we also see it right after the Trump indictment. I don't think that these things are accidental. I think that one is designed to create cover for the other, to create the appearance of the rule of law, when in fact we suffer the abandonment of the rule of law in both directions, saying that certain people are above the law, depending on their last name, and certain people are below the law, frankly held to a different standard, precisely because of being a member of a disfavored political class. And so I do think one of the things we suffer in our country right now is the abandonment of the rule of law altogether. That's one of the things I hope to restore 
as the next U.S. president. But in order to do it, I think we have to see the problem with clear eyes. And I do think that honesty is the ticket to our future. How do you do that? It does seem to me that this is another example of why people have so little trust in our institutions, because they do, again, whatever these individual merits of the case against Trump or the case against Hunter Biden. The perception that a lot of people have here is, as you've said, two sister standards of justice and the trust that they have in these institutions that are so vital to ensuring the smooth functioning of and the fair functioning of American government, that trust is being eroded. How do you rebuild it? Well, look, I think that the way we rebuild it is first make it built on a foundation of truth, right? I think there's two parts to trust. There's the person or institution that is deserving of that trust, and then there's the attitudes of the people who relate to it. So I prefer to change the true matter first. I think that the administrative police state is corrupt at the federal level right now. And so one of the things I said that I would do is I would shut down, for example, bureaus like the FBI, which I don't think should exist. You have, at the local level, local prosecutors and local police You don't have a large investigative administrative bureaucracy sitting in between. At the federal level, you have the U.S. Marshals and the Department of Justice. I think that reorganizing the federal government in a way that has fewer bureaucracies that are open to capture and to political capture, I think is actually a formula for restoring trust by putting a lot of that under the U.S. Marshals, which as a strict enforcement arm don't suffer some of the same politicized behaviors that the FBI does. So I think that civil service reform more generally, Jerry, is how you get to the truth of the matter. Personally, if the U.S. president can't work for the federal government for more than eight years, I don't think most of the federal bureaucrats reporting into me, should I be the next president, should be working there for more than eight years either. Agencies that shouldn't exist should be shut down. Institutions need to have purpose restored to the purpose of those institutions like the U.S. military, which I think has lost its way. It needs to restore its purpose of winning wars and deterring wars. And so a lot of the loss of purpose, I think, is a vacuum for bureaucratic corruption. But then I think once we've rebuilt that foundation, then I think it takes a leader to be able to then say, okay, here's what was wrong. We saw it with clear eyes. I don't believe in just showing up with a honky-dory kumbaya payan to hope and expect people to come along for the rhetoric. But if it's grounded in truth, and I'm approaching the American people with a clear-eyed view of the problem, and unsparing criticism of the reality that most people see with plain eyes anyway. Then I think once we've cleaned that up, I would also have the authority and level of trust and credibility with the people to say that, okay, now we've put that behind us and this is how we actually restore trust in what remains, three branches of government, not four, an actual constitutional republic where the people decide who they elect to run the government rather than the people who run the government today who aren't the people who are elected at all. That's, I think, the journey to get back to trust. There have been suggestions that, you know, we had that whistleblower from the Justice Department who said that there had been interference at a political level in, in this investigation of Hunter Biden. We've already heard about that. Are you concerned that, again, the appearance that maybe, given that we know that, given some of the other things that Congressional committees are telling us that they are discovering, supposedly, about Joe Biden. I mean, how concerned are you? You know, how much do you share the view that many Republicans have that Biden, this may be a problem of fundamental corruption in this administration? I think there is a deep problem of corruption in, frankly, both political parties, but especially in the modern Democratic Party. I think it is perhaps different only in kind, in in a small kind, to what we saw with the Clintons and much of the corruption that we saw in the lead up to. Hillary Clinton's would-be presidency that never transpired. I think the reality, though, is the corruption isn't at the level of just the people at the top. I think that's a place where you may miss the plot, Jerry, is 
Joe Biden, in many ways, I believe, is just a puppet for the managerial class. And I think that same managerial class has leverage over him to drop him like he's hot, just like they'll drop Donald Trump like he's hot. You know, I think that's a big part of what the tentative investigation into Joe Biden's mishandling of classified documents is all about. Right now, he's a convenient puppet for them to put up if Trump is indeed the nominee. But if Trump gets derailed, my prediction is that's when the investigations of the classified document breaches by Joe Biden will then ratchet up into full gear if he's unwilling to yield and step aside as their nominee as well. And so I think a big part of the story of corruption here isn't just a Joe Biden, Hunter Biden story, but I think it is a deeper problem with the managerial bureaucratic class within the Democratic Party and within the federal government itself, of which Joe Biden's really just the face. Again, last week you said you would pardon Donald Trump should he be convicted of these charges. You said you would pardon him. You called on other Republican candidates to pardon him too. And you said it was a politicized persecution through prosecution. But some other Republicans have stopped well short of that. All other Republican candidates, as far as I can make out, have stopped well short of that. And other Republicans, including some of the most loyal lieutenants to Donald Trump, who served in his administration, have said, you know, these are serious charges. Bill Barr, his attorney general, said it was a very damning indictment. And if half of it turns out to be true, Donald Trump is toast. Are you really so confident that it's the right thing to do, given the seriousness of these charges and the fact that many people do regard them in that way, to offer to give him this blanket pardon should you become president? There's two points I would make, Jerry. First is on the law itself. I think there is a difference between a bad judgment and a legal violation, a criminal violation. So I would not have made the same judgments that Donald Trump made. That's a big part of why I'm running for president, mind you, against him in this primary. But I think that the Presidential Records Act supersedes the Espionage Act, and I can give you the legal basis for that as it applies to formal U.S. presidents, because on the legal theory that the Department of Justice is pursuing, the Espionage Act would have criminalized even the removal of unclassified documents because the Espionage Act doesn't make that distinction between classified and unclassified documents. And the Presidential Records Act expressly allows a U.S. president access to unclassified documents. So, so on a statutory basis alone, that being a more recent act, you could say that that supersedes the older one. As a matter of judgment, and I think if Trump's judgments were bad or the Biden DOJ's judgment certainly was worse, because using then an untested or at least contested legal theory to break from any historical precedent to indict a former U.S. president at that in the middle of an election where he's the leading candidate right now, at least against the president who's in power, sets a dangerous precedent for this country. And if that was going to happen, it better be on solid legal footing, not on contested legal grounds for some of the reasons that I've mentioned. Yeah, again, there are people who question very much whether the, the relevance of the Presidential Records Act here, given the charges involved. But isn't this a process that's best sorted out through the courts? I mean, if the, if the president has been indicted, if he were to be convicted, if you're right and that the law is being wrongly applied or the wrong law is being applied, he'll have appeals process. Isn't it better to you know, be able to go to an appeals process and ultimately all the way to the Supreme Court, presumably? Isn't it better to let that legal process play out rather than for you to intervene in the process and say, no, you're pardoned before we've actually gone through it. I think the real intervention in the process was the indictment in the middle of an election by the party in power against a former U.S. president who's also running against that sitting U.S. president. So I think that was the real form of interference. And what I'm saying is actually, as somebody who is running to defeat Donald Trump, nonetheless, speak out against that abuse. And I, and I do think that it requires getting into the weeds a little bit. The Presidential Records Act, I mean, if you take the exact 
you know, I haven't heard a good refutation of my exact statement of the facts and law here. The Espionage Act is silent on the distinction between classified and unclassified documents. That is to say, it would be a crime under the Justice Department's legal theory here, even if Trump had taken unclassified documents. That's the part of the Espionage Act that they're charging. And yet the Presidential Records Act expressly gives the president the right to remove unclassified documents, which again is, I think, a point in favor of the fact that one act supersedes the other. But the broader point is against the backdrop of that legal complexity. I think it sets an awful precedent for the country when now we can, unfortunately, Jerry, absent, I think, an extraordinary show of leadership that cleans the slate, which is frankly, what I hope to deliver by winning this election, I think we're going to see a tit-for-tat downhill precedent that is going to be good for neither Republicans nor Democrats nor the country. And that's why I think it is net positive for a competitor of Donald Trump in this race to say that we will move forward as a country and leave it to the people to decide who actually elects the U.S. president rather than have the federal police intervene in the matter. So I believe it'll be net trust-enhancing and net positive for the country to move forward if we don't actually have a past president and current sitting U.S. presidential candidate have the specter of prison hanging over his head and the country's head in the midst of an important presidential election. We're going to take a break there. When we come back, I'll have more with Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. We'll be talking about the administrative state and also foreign policy. Stay with us. High inflation has impacted many of us. But what happens when prices go up 55, 67, or even 276%? It makes living more costly. It eats into your paycheck. At the end of the day, the salary itself, it's not enough. And money quickly loses value. You can't see if you can't do anything. Check out our complete series on extreme world inflation from A to Z, from What's News, plus other exclusive content on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. All right, let's get on to some of the issues that you've talked about in your campaign. And we've talked a little bit about reforming the administrative state, which you've been very vocal about. You've talked about some of the things here and some of the rules you would introduce in terms of people who work for the government and some of the agencies. One thing you have talked a lot about is radically reforming and possibly even eliminating some of the government agencies. And we'll talk, I want to come on to talk about your plans for the Fed in particular. Do you been highly critical of some of the agencies like the FTC and others? It does seem to me, from listening to what you've been saying, that you do have a rather expansive view of executive power here. That I mean, many of these agencies were obviously established by Congress. The Federal Reserve uh, acts according to uh, legislation passed by Congress. You seem to have a very, if I may say so, rather bold and perhaps an overly bold agenda for a president, and especially for a Republican, a conservative. You seem to think that there is kind of executive power, maybe enables you to do away with all kinds of agencies in a way that I think some people might balk at. What's your answer to that? My answer to that, Jerry, is that I am a staunch defender of the U.S. Constitution and have, I think, if I may say so myself, the deepest understanding of the mechanics, the statutory authority and the constitutional authority to shut down the administrative state of anyone who's run for president in the last 30 years. This is my my passion, my obsession, my my mission, domestic mission in setting a policy agenda for the next eight years. 
So let me explain to you what I think historically are viewed as the obstacles set by Congress, and then we'll get into the actual facts. The two major obstacles are, number one, civil service protections, and number two, so-called impoundment prevention protections. So the civil service protections say that there's laws passed by Congress, such as the Civil Service Service Protection Acts, that say that the president cannot unilaterally fire appointees in the so-called competitive service. That's a misnomer. The competitive service is anything but competitive. It's anti-meritocratic, but they refer to the swaths of government bureaucrats. Read the statutes closely. Turns out that the purpose of those statutes, as codified into law, was to prevent political reprisal of an individual civil servant who was acting against the political will of the president for all the reasons you'd expect. That's why that's in the law. It does not apply on its own terms to mass layoffs. Those require only 60-day notice. There's also a statute called 5 U.S.C. 3302, you know, if you want to get specific about it, that gives the U.S. president express authority to set the regulations governing the Office of Personnel Management, OPM, that's the HR department of the executive branch of the government. Again, that sits with the U.S. president per Congress's constitutional authority itself. Then there's the Presidential Reorganization Statute of 1977 that, by the way, had certain provisions in it that required the president to submit the reorganization plans to Congress, but those limitations on presidential power expired on their own terms in 1980 when Jimmy Carter left office, who was the very president that Congress was skeptical of, when they put those constraints of congressional review in. So taken together, though, and I can you know get into the technicals of it, Jerry, I've studied this stuff and you know live, eat, and breathe this in some ways. It's not at all an expansive, sweeping use of executive power. It's an appropriate use of what's already been codified, both constitutionally and statutorily, into the way a U.S. president runs the executive branch of the government. And the simple notion is this. There's one executive branch, not two. And so that means if the people of this country elect the president of the United States, turns out the president of the United States is well empowered to lead that executive branch as an executive. And just as a CEO, you know, I could tell you from my experience that if somebody works for you and you can't fire them, that means they don't work for you. It's no different if you're the CEO or the chief executive of the executive branch of the U.S. government either. You know, that's the intuitive way of understanding it, but it's not just the intuitive basis that I'm using here. It's a strong statutory grounding that requires, I think, a first personal understanding of a U.S. president that, frankly, most other presidents, even Republican presidents, haven't had. But I think that's what's stopped them from actually getting the job done of shutting down that administrative state. Let's talk about one particular agency which you've talked a lot about. Again, I've mentioned it before, the Federal Reserve. You've been very critical of the Fed monetary policy conduct over the last 20 years or so. And indeed, a lot of people would share in that criticism, although not everybody would necessarily share your solution. You've proposed that the Fed, instead of pursuing its dual mandate of keeping low inflation and sustained consistent with the lowest level of unemployment, you propose that the Fed should actually pursue a dollar-focused policy, that it should aim at currency stability, focusing on maintaining stability of the dollar. Now, I've looked at this, read things that you've written about this, and you know, you point to periods of dollar stability that we've had over the last 50 years or so, and whether they've been associated with reasonably high rates of growth. But let me just ask you on this, though, in particular, wouldn't that risk the Fed having to adopt monetary policy in order to stabilize the dollar, to maintain the stable value of the dollar, which could be very much at odds with the immediate economic conditions with demand. That would be particularly the case in the last couple of years. The dollar has fluctuated significantly over the last couple of years. Let me just give you some examples. 
According to the Wall Street Journal index, in May 21, trade-weighted index, the dollar was about 86. It went up to 105 in October 22 and is down to 97 as we speak today. This would require, first of all, the Fed to presumably have significantly eased policy as the dollar was rising in order to maintain stability at a time when inflation was rising. And then in the last six months ago, to have an even tighter monetary policy to maintain the stability of the dollar even as interest rates had already been rising and adding even more interest rate pain to the economy. So again, my broad point is, isn't that policy of pursuing dollar stability going to put the Fed often at odds with the immediate demands of the economy? Yes, it's a good question, Jerry, but I I fundamentally disagree that that's actually how it would play out if that were itself the stated policy of the Fed. So I think that that itself has a discursive impact into how the market itself takes its signals and equilibrates accordingly. And I think the market is actually able to take price signals more effectively when the dollar is itself stable. I think there's also a lot more to say. I mean, you could talk about what I view certainly view as a reductionist explanation of inflation in the last few years as the the unidimensional variable affecting it is strictly monetary policy when, in fact, in the last few years, it's absolutely, in my opinion, my firm opinion been driven by a fiscal bonanza of spending. There was no outcome other than inflation, which we could have signed up for by pumping the trillions that we pumped into the economy in the COVID and post-COVID period. And so personally, I believe that the market itself, financial markets, capital markets, currency markets, will be able to better take price signals in an environment in which the dollar is stable in a way that actually reduces the even need of the Federal Reserve to play the so-called smoothing function that we seem to have taken for granted. And then the other thing I'd add to that, Jerry, is I think the Fed has played a disastrous role in in effectuating that smoothing function. So this idea that even if you accept the idea that there is a constraint on the ability to play a smoothing monetary policy, that presumes that the people, the human beings who are conducting it, are indeed able to do so in an omniscient manner that is effectively carrying out that responsibility. And history over the last three financial cycles of crises would suggest anything but. I'll just give you one example where the Fed has, I think, made the repeated mistake of taking wage growth to be a leading indicator of inflation, when in fact, I think most people who have ever lived in the business world understand that wage growth is often a trailing indicator, is usually a trailing indicator of where we are in the business cycle. Wages are the last thing to go up. Usually anyone who's run a business could tell you that. But what that means in turn is that the Fed has then tightened monetary policy precisely into a what would have been a natural downturn in the business cycle anyway, creating boom-bust bailout cycles, which is, I think, what we saw in 2000, what you saw in 2008, and to a, to a more limited extent, part of what you're seeing in some of the unintended own goals that we scored with respect to banking instability caused by Fed policy earlier this year as well. So... I personally think that if dollar stability were ex-ante pre-specified as the single mandate of the Fed and the Fed actually acted accordingly, then you wouldn't have the need for an entire marketplace and and more than cottage industry. It's a giant industry of people who watch exactly what the Fed is going to do and try to divine signals as though it were voodoo from heaven. They're not doing it because the Fed knows something or other that the market doesn't. They're just looking to see what the Fed actually destabilizes next. And so if we break that cycle to the contrary, I actually think the business cycle smoothing itself out may be more successful than a Fed that in the name of smoothing it has actually exacerbated it with a false hubris or what Friedrich Hayek would have called a fatal conceit. I think we have to reject that fatal conceit. Two other quick questions on foreign policy. On Ukraine, 
You've called for the US to stop supplying Ukraine with weapons and to seek settlement in the war with Russia. What kind of a deal is likely in those circumstances, given the absence of US support? What kind of a deal in those circumstances would be achievable, which wouldn't somehow reward Russia for its aggression against Ukraine by at least allowing them to retain some part of Ukrainian territory? So I'm looking at this as a small piece, Jerry, of a broader and more expansive foreign policy vision where my top goal is actually to disrupt the China-Russia alliance. I think that is together the single greatest military threat that the United States faces. Back in 2001, when they first signed their Treaty of Good Neighborliness and Cooperation, this was actually a major concern for the Bush administration before 9-11 changed our prioritization and focus dramatically. And then they expanded that in the so-called No Limits Partnership that Putin and Xi entered in 2022. Together, they outmatched the U.S. Either one alone does not, but together with Russia's nuclear stockpile and hypersonic missile capabilities, but combined with China's naval capabilities, not to mention its second largest economy next to the U.S., they do outmatch the U.S. in every area of great power competition. And so my view is there's an opportunity for us now to pull a reverse maneuver of what Nixon accomplished in 1972 when he pulled Mao away from the USSR and Brezhnev. And I think that did Nixon trust Mao or were we endorsing the behaviors of Mao Zedong when we made a strategic maneuver that advanced U.S. interests? No, we did not. I think in many ways, Putin is like the new Mao in that relationship. Mao was in the little brother position to the USSR. Putin is now in the little brother position to Xi Jinping, a position that I think he does not relish occupying. And I think we should take advantage of that. I think that we can go deeper into some areas where you may disagree with me here, but I do think that for all of the attention paid to the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, by the way, whose letter I believe we have more than fulfilled, yeah, there's very little attention paid to 1991 or 1990 when James Baker you know, made a promise to Gorbachev that you know, we would not see former Warsaw Pact countries added to NATO, and yet NATO's expanded more after the fall of the USSR than ever it did during the existence of the USSR. But put that little side comment of mine to one side, I think we can actually use this as an opportunity to not say we trust Vladimir Putin or cozy up to him anyway. Far from it. I don't trust Putin. But I do trust him to follow his self-interest if I trust him to do one thing. And that would be to get out of that little brother relationship with Xi Jinping. We freeze the current lines of control in a Korean War-style armistice agreement. We make a commitment for Ukraine not to join NATO, which is what Putin asked for after Angela Merkel's poorly thought out comments in the fall of 2020, me that the Minsk agreement was just about a matter of biding time. I think it was a disastrous example of failed diplomacy by Angela Merkel to say something as responsible as that. But to be able to say, hey, we'll go back and rewind the clock and say yes, a clear yes to the answer of the question of whether we would freeze any Ukrainian admission to NATO. But in return, we get something greater in return which most importantly is exiting the military partnership with China that includes no joint military exercises or anything else, exit the 2001 treaty and the 2022 agreement. We restore normalized economic relations with Russia. We require Russia to pull any nuclear weapons out of Kaliningrad, bordering Poland, keep them out of Belarus, move the military out of Cuba, Venezuela, and the Western Hemisphere. And what we will have then done is really achieved a trilateral international order where none of the three major nuclear superpowers are allied with each other. But I think that favors the United States compared to the bilateral order that currently favors China. And, you know, that is a sweeping foreign policy vision. It, it, I think, certainly turns upside down where much of the consensus viewpoint is in both the Republican or Democratic Party. 
But in that context, I think ending the Ukraine war presents an opportunity to get us closer to achieving and advancing American interests, which keeps at least where my eyes focused where they are on the risk with China. And the last point I would make is that I think this is the single most powerful way to deter Xi Jinping from going after Taiwan without going to war. Because right now, Xi Jinping's bet is that the U.S. won't want to go to simultaneous war with two different allied nuclear superpowers. And he may be right about that. But if Russia's no longer in Xi Jinping's camp, that'll really force Xi Jinping to to think twice before going after Taiwan. And there are some other ways I would deter this as well, turning Taiwan into a porcupine, you know, I think reversing our divest to invest program, which has hurt us in our naval capacity in the South China Sea. But I think the biggest thing we could do is pull the Russia-China alliance apart. And I'm the only candidate in either party who has, I think, brought that vision to the table. All right. Final question to you. Again, thought at the beginning, you've been very supportive of Donald Trump over his indictment and indeed over the general legal uh, action taken against him. Again, you launched your campaign back in February. You're in the low single digits in the opinion polls. There's a long way to go. There are some people, cynical people, perhaps not me, who would suggest that maybe your campaign, and you've been very, very vocal on woke corporations. You've written these books that we've talked about before on this podcast about the woke culture that we live in, about the culture of victimhood and grievance that we live in, about the importance of merit. You've been leading this campaign. A more cynical person than me might think that this is a campaign not really expecting to result in your becoming president, but perhaps to elevate your position, to give yourself a higher standing. Maybe you're 37 years old, maybe put position yourself for greater things in politics or indeed in business or wherever else. Are you thinking in those terms as you look at the campaign and you look, we've got a debate coming up. Are you looking to put yourself out there in the front line, perhaps next time around of Republican candidates? Is this a launch campaign for something larger to come? No, Jerry, I think that in many ways, you know, this the last few years of our interactions, I already had that platform. (laughs) I wrote three books in the last 20 months traveled much of this country, built a company called Strive that's the leading competitor to the ESG industrial complex today, living a good life while I was at it. So I think that if I wanted to build a platform to drive positive change and have some fun along the way, (laughs) the good news is that's what I was already doing. The bad news is we've given that up at tremendous sacrifice, you know, both at a personal and family level, as well as even a financial level. We've put eight-figure sums into this campaign already, and and we will put more in. I think those are sacrifices with a three-year-old and an 11-month-old at home that you don't take lightly. We do that for one reason, which is to win this election, but not even just to win the election. I think, if anything, I would argue it the other way, which is winning the election is too small. The question is, what do we do in the eight years that come after that? And I'm really in this not just to win an election. That understates it. I'm in this to lead a national revival akin to what Reagan did in 1980. That's what I think we have an opportunity to do in 2024. I do think, I've said it before, I'll say it again, we're in the middle of this national identity crisis where we have lost our sense of who we are. I have a vision of what the answer to that question is. What does it mean to be an American today? I'd be the youngest president ever elected if elected, the first millennial already to ever run for U.S. president as a Republican. I feel a sense of responsibility to reach that next generation and revive our missing sense of national pride. And I'm in this race because, forget the act of running, but in terms of leading this country for the next eight years, I think there is no better way to make my contribution to this country than to do for this country what Reagan did in the 80s. And I'm genuinely optimistic we can do that and more in the eight years starting from when I take office in January of 2025. You fancy being a vice presidential nominee for Donald Trump or somebody else? I don't. No, I think that going back to driving change in the way that I was already driving change. And by the way, (laughs) in a comfortable way for myself and my family, 
I think that's what we would look to do for the next chapter. But we are in this to win this. I'm ahead of, you know, you're, you're right, in the low single digits, but still ahead of where Donald Trump was in June of 2015. And I think the debate stage, I think, is going to be critical. If any other prior cycle of history is an indication, anything before the debate stage is literally irrelevant. And to be clear, you've already met the requirements to be on that debate stage, right? That's correct. Yeah, we passed 50,000 unique donors already, and 40,000 is the requirement. And polling at 1%, I think, is the minimum. For three polls, we've already you know, hit 5x that in multiple polls already. So I think that we will be on that debate stage, but I think that will be the major catalyst that turns this race upside down. Top three in Iowa, top two in New Hampshire. I think those are very achievable milestones, just like Trump hit in 2015 to 16. I think I'm poised to hit those milestones. And if we do, especially relative to expectations as an outsider, that momentum, I think, will carry us through the entire primary. Vivek Ramaswamy, thanks very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you, Jerry. Appreciate it. That's it for this week. Please join us again next week when I'll have another conversation with a leading figure examining the big issues that shape the way we live. Until then, thank you for joining us and goodbye. Goodbye.